The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed close to the sea. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came forward. Seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. He went off with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed upon him. Now there was a woman afflicted with a hemorrhages for twelve years. She had suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet she was not helped, but only grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She said, If I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Jesus, aware at once that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, Who has touched my clothes? But his disciples said to Jesus, You see how the crowd is pressing upon you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, realizing what had happened to her, approached in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. While he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Disregarding the message that was reported, Jesus said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid. Just have faith. Jesus did not allow anyone to accompany him inside except Peter, James, and John, and his brother, the brother of James. When they arrived at the house of the synagogue official, he saw, caught sight of a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So he went in and said to them, Why this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they ridiculed him. Then he put them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the room where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. The girl, a child of twelve, arose immediately and walked around. At that, they were utterly astounded. He gave strict orders that no one should know this and said that she should be given something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Just a few thoughts on these readings, and 
it's one of those Sundays where I think it might be helpful for us to kind of take a couple of steps back and look at the big picture and ask those big questions like, what does it mean to be a human being? And what's the nature of evil and good? And I want to do that because that first reading from the book of Wisdom does that. It calls us back to look at the whole story of Scripture and the whole story of our salvation. And it does that in these two verses, and I'm going to have Paul put them up there. It's the end of the reading that Bev read so well for us. It says, For God formed man to be imperishable. The image of his own nature he made him. But by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who belonged to his company experienced it. From Wisdom 2, 23 and 24. God created us good. He created us to be the image of God's nature. And Paul already gave you the answer to the question I was going to ask. What does it mean to be the image of God? What does it mean to be the image of God? Thomas Akempis, who wrote that classic spiritual work, The Imitation of Christ, says, to say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence, for God is love. We know God is love when we think about the Trinity. God the Father totally giving himself over to the Son, and the Son totally giving himself back to the Father on the cross, and that gift itself is the Holy Spirit. That giving of self, that being united through love. See, that's what it means to love. It means to be united with someone or something by a free act of your will to become one with them or it or whatever it is through love. That's why a husband and a wife are often a good image for us of what love looks like. Two becoming one or a parent and a child, where we unite ourselves to another person or another thing because of love. And love never dies. Love never dies. Why? Because as Thomas Akempis said, because God is love. And when we love We participate in the love of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he united himself to us by his love. And that love brings us into his new life, into his resurrection, into the very life of God. See, we're created for that. We're created for love. But then that raises a question. At least it does for me, and I'm pretty sure it probably does for everybody in this room. If we're created imperishable, and if we're created in the image of God, and if we're created for love, why is the world so screwed up? Why is my my life, I'll speak for me, why is my life so screwed up? 
If I'm created in this image of God, why doesn't love just happen the way it's supposed to happen? And that brings us to the second part of that little two verses from the book of wisdom. Paul, if you'd put up that second. It's the same verses we just looked at. Next slide, there you go. For God formed man to be imperishable, the image of his own nature. So he made us to love, and love never dies. He made us to be part of love. But the envy, by the envy of the devil, death entered the world. And they who belong to his company experience it. What is this devil, the enemy of love? How does he work? See, when you watch, I have my kids. My kids are, you know, teenagers and a little older. And um, they watch horror movies because they like to be scared. And a big horror movie series now is The Conjuring. And they're scary. They're very scary. And they portray possession. If you watch The Exorcist, if you're older, it's that same kind of idea and film. And the devil is portrayed as very powerful and very frightening. And when we look at Scripture, what this verse is alluding to is the Garden of Eden and how the serpent came and twisted the truth for Eve and for Adam. He took the truth that God had told them that you could eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except for the one, and he twisted and said, God doesn't want you to eat of that one because he's against you. You can't trust God. He doesn't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. Only you know. You don't need to trust God. Just do it yourself. And he twisted their thinking. And they started to believe these lies. And they started to not love like God loves, to allow the love of God flow through them, but to channel that love to different things. Rather than God and the things God loves, they channeled it to other stuff, mainly themselves. They channeled it to themselves and their bodies and their, their desires and the things they wanted, food and comfort and hot tubs and fast cars or whatever it is that they wanted. They loved those things. And remember, when you love, you unite, you unite yourself with whatever you love. And if you unite yourself to something that's perishing, guess what? You're going to die too. You're going to die too. And so the devil twisted this love. He didn't overpower them. He didn't force them to do anything. He just shifted the way they're thinking because the devil is not particularly strong or particularly powerful. See, there's really two ways to look at why the world is so screwed up. One is an ancient heresy called Manichaeism. The name doesn't matter, but it's kind of fancy, so I like to say it. Manichaeism. And Manichaeism basically said there's a good God and there's a bad God. And the reason everything is all screwed up is because they're fighting with each other and we're not quite sure who's going to win. And it's back and forth and back and forth. And that's why the world is all screwed up. But that's not the Christian truth. We don't believe in a good God and a bad God that are at war with each other and we're caught in the middle. That's not the reality that comes to us in Scripture. The reality is that there's a good God and then way 
here, there's this angel who twists the truth. And he doesn't have any power other than to turn away from God and try to bring everybody else with him. And because he's not happy and he's miserable, he wants everybody else to be unhappy and to be miserable. So he gets them, he tricks them into attaching themselves to loving something that's not God and to not seeing things the way God sees and to not trusting God as we should. It's a really tricky trick. He gets us addicted to things so that we think we're going to find our ultimate happiness in something that's not God. And when we do that, death enters the picture. See, Jesus knew this. And the reason we know there's not a good God and a bad God and they're basically equal fighting it out like most of the movies tell us, because it's dramatic, but there's only one good God, comes in the gospel today. We see two incredible things that Jesus does basically without really trying. Jesus, the embodiment of the good God, of the only God, the Son of the Father, comes into the world. And did you notice in that when he heals that woman? You know, she runs up to him and she's been bleeding for 12 years. Basically, anything she touches becomes unclean because she's been bleeding. So she's afraid, but she touches Jesus and is immediately healed. And Jesus barely even notices. He just says, who touched me? He doesn't have to try. He doesn't have to work at it. The healing just flows from him because of who he is, because of his power and because of his love. See, there's no good God, no good God to fight. He just heals. And the same is true with the raising of the little girl. He simply goes in and says, she's sleeping. And how often we think of death as final. But that's not the way God made it. And that's not the way God wants it. And he said, she's sleeping. And then he says, give me your hand. Or he takes her hand and says, Talitha kuam. Little girl, get up. And she gets up and begins to live a life of service. See, that's the challenge that we have, not to allow our thinking to be distorted into thinking there's another evil God out there, but to trust in the one true God. See, there is nothing to be afraid of. Did you catch that line that Jesus said to the centurion in the gospel? He said, do not be afraid, only believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. And when, like those women, like that woman with the hemorrhage, like the little girl, when we allow God to touch us, when we come close to him, life happens. Life happens. It's when we get distorted in our thinking and when we allow ourselves to become addicted to something that's not God, that we get lost and we think the devil has this power, but he only has the power we've given him, the only thing that we've surrendered to him. And all we have to do is turn back around and Jesus is there. We reach out, we touch his garment, we heal him, or he heals us. Or sometimes we don't even do that. He comes to us in our brokenness and death and just says, get up, I'm here. 
It's going to be okay. There's no evil God to be afraid of. Resist those temptations that that little angel is giving you, Sparky, whatever you want to call him. Just turn away from them and trust me. Trust in Jesus and all shall be well. Do not be afraid, only believe. That's the challenge that the gospel set before us. That's the big picture. Now, it gets complicated in the details, but that's the big picture. That's why we come to Mass every week, so that we can encounter that one whose touch heals the world, that one who brings life out of death, that one who loves us so much, that one whose image we're created in, so that we can be restored to the life God wants for us. Do not be afraid. Only believe.